You're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. This morning, we have two texts. First, we'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And then we're also going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. And actually, I'll be covering a number of texts kind of out of the ideas that are generated in those two passages. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and 1 Timothy 6, 12. You can look and follow along on the screen. I'll be using the New International Version. So hear now the words of the living God. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And then in 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight, of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Around 500 BC or so, the great king Xerxes, the head of the Persian Empire, who called himself the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, had approached uh, the nation of Greece or the various city-states that comprised Greece, and said that he wanted them to become part of his empire. The Greeks, however, did not want this. They considered Xerxes their enemy, and so they resisted. But rather than marching directly against the Greeks, Xerxes took time and he raised a massive army, mainly comprised of a whole bunch of allied nations, people that were under and part of his kingdom, but they weren't directly Persians. And it was said that his army was so large it was possibly, some estimates ran to a million men. And the report had come back to the Greeks as they were preparing to fight against them that when the Persian archers, uh, or the, the archers of Xerxes' entire army, the Persians and their allies, would fire their arrows into the air, there were so many arrows that it would block out the sun. And one Spartan actually quipped, well, that's great, at least we'll know that we'll have our battle in the shade. But Xerxes sent this massive army over, and the Greeks didn't have time to even prepare, so a small force of approximately about 8,000 Greeks, which were led by 300 Spartans under Leonidas, their king, went down and they decided to take their stand at Thermopylae. Uh, Thermopylae, which means hot gates, was down by some hot springs, and it was a particular place where the pass was very, very narrow. And so even though Xerxes had a million uh, men at his command against a very small force, he could only get a small number of them up to the fight at any one time. And so for the first couple of days, the Greeks actually held out and defeated the Persians. They defeated some of the allies that came in, and then when the immortals, which was the cream of the crop in Xerxes' private army was sent in to face uh, the Greeks. They were actually defeated and they were pushed back and it appeared that the Greeks were holding. 
And so they did until a trader named Ephialtus showed the Persians a pass. He said, there's a pass where we take our goats around. And if you go up this way, you can get around behind the Greeks. And the Persians did take that pass shown by the trader. They were given access and they came in and they destroyed the Greek army there. Now, fortunately, they had held out long enough that the Greeks were able to prepare for the later battles to come. But I bring up this battle and what happened there because there was a threefold enemy that the Greeks were facing. They were facing Xerxes and his Persians, but they were also facing his allies that were external to Greece. But then very importantly, they had to face traitors within. And to be successful, the Greeks were going to have to fight and defeat all three. They had to fight a three-front war. And we face the same thing in our spiritual warfare. We have an enemy, the devil, and we have his allies without and an ally, a traitor that lies within. And if we're going to be successful in our spiritual warfare, we have to fight against all three. So let's take a look to begin with at our threefold enemy. And the threefold enemy is Satan, the world, and our sinful nature or the flesh. Notice in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, the apostle speaks and says that we used to live when we followed the ways of the world. There is one of the enemies. That's the one allied with Satan. And of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit uh, that is there. That is referring to the devil himself. And then in verse 3, he says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. So Paul here, who is certainly speaking about unregenerate people, he was speaking about us in our unregenerate state, or the Ephesians in their unregenerate state. And he lists and says, at that time, you were dominated by three enemies, the world, Satan, and the flesh, or the sinful nature. And it is true that at salvation, God begins to deliver us from all three of these. At that time, we are delivered and we, we cease to be of the world and we are now in the world, but no longer of it. We are no longer in Satan's kingdom, but are transferred into God's kingdom. And God does a work to deliver us from our sinful nature. And all of that begins at the moment of salvation. However, it's imperative to understand that this struggle continues throughout the Christian life. It does not simply come to an end when we become a believer. We are going to have to continue dealing with and fighting this three-front war against the world, Satan, and the flesh. And that is what we want to look at today. Holy Trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil are referred to very often in Scripture and also in church history. For example, if you think of the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, we won't turn there, but if you remember that parable, Jesus says, you know, the seed sown, which is the word of God. But the first thing that happens to the seed is Satan comes in and he steals the seed before it even begins to grow. The second thing is some of it sprouts up, but we're told, but when persecution from the world arises, uh, the people fall away. And then the third thing is that people have their desire for riches that arises from within. They have their own unholy desires, and Jesus says it chokes out the word and makes it unfruitful. It's the same threefold enemy, the world, Satan, and the flesh. John of the Cross, who was a, uh, one of the uh, early church fathers, spoke and wrote, wrote on the 
perfection of the soul, and he said there were three great enemies to the perfection of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In the Book of Common Prayer, one of the, the prayers that is offered very regularly in it is, from all deceits of the world, the flesh, and the devil, good Lord, deliver us. This threefold enemy has been seen in the word and down through Christian history. Now, this is important for us to understand because there is our enemy and then he has two allies with them. The enemy ultimately is Satan and demons. Remember in Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world. So it's Satan and his demonic host are our ultimate enemy. But the world is Satan's ally to exert pressure upon you and I to try and shape us in our thinking and our desires so that we would want to align with Satan. And then our sinful nature is the traitor within, betraying us to Satan, giving him access to further enslave us. And in particular, the world and our flesh, our sinful nature, combine to produce strongholds in us that are used by Satan to prevent us from experiencing the freedom that we have been given in Christ Jesus. And it's imperative in this spiritual warfare we understand how they collude together to get those strongholds. When I talked about strongholds a few weeks ago of thoughts and our emotions and desires that lead to our words, that lead to our actions, and how those things together comprise the strongholds, well, part of how those things are built is as the world and our own sinful nature collude with one another, there we find strongholds within us. And to experience the full salvation that God intends for us, we have to fight the good fight of faith against Satan, the world, and our sinful nature. Notice Paul tells us there in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession. So obviously, this is at the end of his letter to Timothy. He's not saying, Timothy, there's a fight for you to get saved. He's saying, no, you've already laid hold of that. You've already made the good confession, but once you are in the faith, there is still a good fight. And Timothy, you're going to have to fight that fight. And that fight ultimately is against the, the world, the flesh, and Satan. So let's talk about these three enemies what they do. And again, a lot of this I'm kind of tying back the teachings that we've already done in this series. First thing is that the enemy we face is the devil. He's the external enemy who wants to destroy us. In Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, the Apostle Paul is telling us that we have to be prepared for this uh, fight, to put on the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Paul is telling us here that though in salvation we were transferred out of Satan's kingdom and into the kingdom of God, the scripture we began our worship with this morning in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul says God has transferred you out of Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of the Son he loves. That is true for every believer. It is certainly true for the Ephesians. But Paul still tells them, you are still in warfare against that former king of yours. He does not willingly give up the battle. And so he still attacks us from the outside, trying to lure us into disobedience to God so that we might be enslaved. 
A Christian cannot be internally possessed by a demon, but you can certainly be externally oppressed by one or by many. And Satan is constantly working. And so in our spiritual warfare, Satan's like Xerxes. He proclaims himself to be king of kings and lord of lords. He is trying to convince us we need to capitulate to him. And he is our great enemy that is outside of us attempting to come from without to conquer and enslave us. Now, how do we fight against him? Because we're going to see not only do we need to recognize these three different enemies, we need to recognize the scripture gives us three different ways to fight each enemy. And you can't fight them with the wrong weapon. So how do we do it? The first thing in fighting the devil that we're told over and over again, and I pointed this out a few weeks ago, is we actually draw near to God before we even turn to engage the enemy. We draw near to God and find our strength in him. This is in multiple passages. I'll just put two up. In James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, we read, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Notice Paul in Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, then stand against the devil. So the first thing that happens when we are under attack from Satan and one of his hosts is we turn and we draw near to God. God's purpose in allowing spiritual warfare for you and I, there is always one overarching primary purpose, and that is to cause us to draw near to God. And if you and I are honest, very often, when things are easy and we sense no spiritual attack, we kind of push cruise control. And God will then allow spiritual attack to come upon us because the only way out is by turning and drawing near to him. And the first step in fighting Satan is drawing near to God. Before we can turn and face him, we first turn and face our Father, and we draw our strength from him. But then the second thing we're told is that after drawing strength from God, we stand against Satan and we resist him. In both of these passages we've just looked at, the same thing is told to us. In Ephesians 6, 13 and 14, and I spoke on this one Sunday, so I won't belabor it very long, but notice four times Paul uses the verb stand. Okay, it's very simple. When you see the same thing used in two verses four times, he's really trying to make a point. And Paul says what you have to do is you have to stand against the devil. Uh, in James, James's term is to resist the devil, but that's not two separate steps. It's the same thing because what they're doing is they're building on the way warfare actually happened back then that again, the army stood shields interlocking with one another and you stood together and what the Greeks did when the Persians attacked them was they built a wall across the gap and they said you can't come through and they stood and the Persians smashed into them and the Greeks stood and then they resisted and they pushed the Persians back. If you remember, some of you may have watched the movie 300 years ago and one of the scenes they actually pushed them right off of a cliff. But it starts by simply standing, interlocking with one another, resisting 
and then beginning to push back. And that's what the call in Scripture always is. We remember Satan is an external foe, and we have renounced him in his kingdom, and he has no authority over us. This is the same thing in Revelation 12, where John gives us the picture of the heavenly war, and Satan is down, and he uses all kinds of titles for Satan. And then he says, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And so believers overcome him by standing together and saying, you have no rights over us. I am no longer your subject. I am no longer part of your kingdom. I am a blood-bought child of God. Martin Luther used to famously, when he felt that Satan was trying to tempt and lure and oppress him, Luther would walk around in the courtyard shouting out, I am a baptized Christian. And what he meant by that was, I've received the covenant sign and seal. I was taken out of your kingdom. I am now part of Christ's kingdom. And therefore, you have no authority over me. And Paul says, you stand. You resist. You do not give him place. But the reality is, we're not only fighting Satan. There's then another external ally. There's a second front in the war. And that external ally is the world. There's many places we could look at. I'll just throw up John 17. And if you read Jesus' high priestly prayer, you can also see all of these elements that are there. But we'll look specifically at the world. Beginning in verse 14, Jesus is praying for us. And he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So notice the world and the evil one, Satan, are allies. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Now the word world, as we're going to see with the, similar with the word flesh, is used multiple ways in Scripture. But uh, it can be used to speak of creation, the fact that God created and it's the universe that's created around us. It can be used specifically of earth within that creation. It also can refer to humanity in general. But there's a third use, which is the one that Jesus is actually doing here, which is the fallen system that is set against God, his purposes, and his people. That ever since the fall, there has been a, a system that is allied with Satan that is set against God, his purposes, and his people. And that's the way Jesus is using it here. He's not talking about the created order, nor is he talking about all of humanity, but he's saying that by the fact that they're your people now, Father, they've been taken out of the world. They're not of the world, but the world hates them. The world is set against them. And so we are no longer of the world, but we are still in the world. And the fallen world is allied with Satan, and it's trying to prevent us from following God, and it's trying to shape us into its own mold and its own pattern and its own way of thinking and acting. And you all know what I'm talking about here, that you know there are ways that the world puts pressure on you and I to try and get us to think and to desire and to act in the way it does. And this is what we're, we're drawing at. So how do we fight against that? Well, obviously we have to draw near to God, but that's not the main emphasis that the Scripture gives. The Scripture gives us two main things that we have to use to resist the world and its attempts to uh, get us. 
First is we separate from the world in our loyalty. Now, Jesus, if you notice in John 17, said, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. So this is not a physical separation. We are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. And so in James, two different passages that point this out. In uh, chapter 1, verse 27, James says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Notice you get both aspects. You are in the world, and so our faith should propel us into the world to take care of orphans and widows, to, to express the faith by works of charity and good works. But as you're doing so, as you are sent into the world with the gospel and good works, James says, but here's the second half of a proper faith, which is you are not polluted by the world. You are ministering in the world, you are living in the world, but you are not to take the world's values and thoughts and ways of living as your own. You reject them. He's even more pointed in James chapter 4, verse 4. Here's a, here's a popular verse to hang on our wall in our Jesus Promise book. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is what? hatred towards God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James, why don't you tell us what you really think? I mean, these are strong words, but see, James is saying, you got to understand, you, you cannot, you are either colluding with Xerxes or you're fighting against him, but you can't be on both sides. And there is a cosmic conflict that is raging and the world has chosen its side. And the world is allied with the enemy of your soul and mine. And so James says, you can't be a friend of that system. There is a basic separation between you and them. And so we fight the world by refusing to be polluted by its values and its gods. There are gods in this culture right now. And the world says, make peace with that God. Let that God shape your desires. Let that God mold your mind and your thoughts. And let that God be towards which your actions are directed. And James says you cannot do that. That is hatred towards God. And so we fight the world by forming an internal separation. We are not the friend of the world system. And we are fully well aware as we are out ministering and loving and serving that everywhere we go, the world is trying to lure us away. The world is trying to infect us. It is trying to pollute us. Now again, here's the really hard part. I could go on just a couple verses more when Jesus was praying. And in verse 18, he tells us not only are we in the world but not of the world he says just like you sent me into the world father i'm sending them into the world so we don't we can't prevent pollution because this is what some christians want to do by saying i have no contact with unbelievers we're actually sent into contact but as we go we have to remember that whenever we're in contact we are in, in essence trying to infect them with the gospel while they're trying to infect us with sin that's always the way it is. 
And we have to be aware of that constantly. And so we form this internal separation and we recognize there is always a basic separation. And part of this means we recognize that the way the world views life is wrong. And so what they will tell us about what our goals in life ought to be, what is important in life, the things that we ought to desire, we should immediately assume they're probably skewed. Because they've missed the little fact in the universe that there is a God, and he is the creator. And we are all going to answer to him, and he is the central, fundamental fact of the entire universe. If you remove him from your calculus of how you ought to live life, you're going to end up in trouble. But that's what the whole world has done. And so there has to be a separation. The second thing the scripture tells us is we become vitally connected to a local church. God's remedy for the external allies of Satan is that he gives us external allies in the kingdom. And that is a local church. Now, I'm not going to take the time to run through a bunch of scriptures here. We've talked about some of these already in the series. But I want us to recognize the only way we can be in the world but not of it is as we walk very closely with other believers in a local church. It's what God has given us. And if you remember, I've spoken of this before, the whole analogy of the armor, only America could screw this up. We are so hyper-individualistic, we always draw the armor with the individual soldier. And armor didn't work that way. If you were a Roman soldier and you marched out with your armor and stood there by yourself, you were going to die quickly. It not only was not designed to work that way, it was so clumsy it became a liability in battle. Because the, the, the shield was basically the same, the word for shield is the same word for door, is what it was used for. Because they, you had this big door in front of you, and I was counting that you were going to interlock your door with mine, and the guy next to you was going to interlock it. The only way to do battle was corporately. And so our lives are lived in the context of other believers, because otherwise the world is going to get you and me. And make no mistake, you will never be so mature that the world will not have a pull on you. You will never be so mighty and strong that you do not need the local church. And if you think through the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians more than any other book leading up to this passage on spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, the whole book central is the church. It is the church. It is the grand vision of the church is one of the central themes in Ephesians, and it brings it out more clearly than any other book. And it's at the conclusion of that that Paul says, as a church, you're going to lock arms, and you're going to fight spiritual warfare. Now, I've talked about that previously, so I'm not going to delve into it anymore, but we need to understand that in fighting the world, there is an internal separation, and then there is an external joining in practical relationships with believers in a local church. Then there's a third front, and that is the sinful nature, which is the internal traitor that is allied with Satan. Now, when we talk about flesh, the word flesh, like the word world, can be used multiple ways. Sometimes it just means our body. But the flesh that's talked about in the world, the flesh and the devil, is not your physical body. That is not your problem. In fact, very often I can keep my physical body from doing dumb things, the problem is what's going on between my ears and what's going on in my heart. 
okay? It's not talking about flesh in that sense. It's referring to the sinful nature, that part of us that wants to rebel against God and follow Satan. Now, when you and I are believers and we were transferred out of Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of light and, and we are no longer of the world but now are part of the church, at the same time, we, uh, our old nature is dealt with and we are given a new nature. We are given a new heart and the Spirit of God comes to live within us. But does that mean the old nature is gone? If you think it is, read Romans 7. And we want to mess that up and say, well, Paul couldn't possibly mean that the mighty apostle of God filled with the Holy Spirit would say, man, I go through this struggle. What I don't want to do, I do. What I do want to do, I don't. Yeah, he could. And every honest Christian admits that struggle. We all find ourselves having desires, right? I mean, don't get religious on me. Every one of you, just like me, are astounded at the desires that rise up from within. And give you a bit of depressing news, I've been walking with Jesus 40 years come January, and I wish I could tell you, hey, after 15, they're gone. <laughs> they're not. I wish I could tell you when you get old and lose hair and it turns gray, they're gone. They're not. It's there. So we're always going to be fighting this. And it is a traitor within. We're, we're drawing near to God. We're standing and resisting. We're trying to stay separate from the world. I'm trying to gather in the local church, and then the traitor within is rising up and saying, there's a little path where we take the sheep. Here's how you can bypass. Here's the particular way Brett struggles. We all fight this, every one of us. So how do we fight the sinful nature? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, there are many passages. You could also look at Galatians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, but I'll just use the one in Ephesians. Paul says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, or it's literally the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So notice what Paul says here. There's threefold thing. Now, of course, you still draw close to God and all of that, but Paul says here's what you do. First, you put off your old nature and its desires. In Galatians, he says you actually crucify the old man. Uh, in, uh, in Colossians, it uses similar language. So we put off the old sinful nature and its desires, and we refuse to give in to what we know is wrong and sinful. And this is hard, because those desires, I marvel sometimes people are like, well, but this is who I am. Yeah, yeah I know that. I understand that. It's called sin. And we all have it. But no, you don't know how deep down it goes. Yeah, I do. I have the same problems. And they run very deep down. But the point is, you say, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. I don't want that to define me. And Paul says you have to put that off every day. Second thing he says is that you have to be made new in the spirit of your mind. We allow God's word to renew us in the spirit, or as the NIV has it, the attitude of our minds, shaping and forming new desires within us. When I first became a believer and I was 
put under the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit resided in me. I was taken out of the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light, and I woke up the next morning. Guess what my thought pattern was like? Guess what my desires were like? Pretty much what they'd been the day before. But I started saying, okay, God, I want to put that off, and I need you to start reshaping the way I think. Because I look at things, and what you say is true seems false to me. But what the world says is true seems right to me. But that doesn't mean it's right. It means my thinking is wrong. And so God says, you have to be made new. You have to let the word renew you and begin to change you and to begin to change your desires. There were all kinds of things I desired that were wrong. And the only way to get them changed was to have the word of God begin to reshape me. But then Paul says, thirdly, there's still another thing which is you put on the new self, which is your new nature given to us by God, and we do the deeds it desires because it is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so please hear me, in this struggle against the flesh, it is not enough to try and avoid evil desires and actions. You have to actively replace them with holy desires and actions. Nature abhors a vacuum. And so does the spiritual world. You remember Jesus said, hey, if there's a guy and he's got a demon and it's cast out and he doesn't replace it with anything, what happens? He goes and gets seven more demons and comes back and he's in a worse place than he was before. You have to not only put off the old, you have to add the new. Paul in the very next verse says, so if you were a thief, put off being a thief, start working hard, and then actually give to other people. If you are a thief and you just say, I'm going to try and stop thieving and I'm not going to replace that with working hard and then giving to others, you're going to fall right back into that pattern. And so it's not enough to just try and avoid the evil. It is not enough to hope that your feelings will change or that my feelings and desires will change. We resist wrong desires and actively do right actions until right desires come. Now, this is an area where the world has infected us badly. We think, I'm not going to do something until I have the desire to do that thing, or else it is inauthentic. That stupidity is what that is. That is wrong. That is not what the Scripture says. We are actually shaped by our actions. It's why we come together. We come in here to worship, And I sing and I pray and I read God's word because it's true whether I feel like it or not. My internal desires and emotions at that moment are inconsequential. It is just as true, the things we sang this morning, whether I believed them or not this morning, whether I felt them or not. But the very activity of praising God changes me and what we'll find most often i when i used to do a lot of running and i i liked running and some of y'all probably misunderstood and thought i woke up every morning and thought i get to go run 10 miles today i can't wait what i usually did was open my eyes and say oh god i have got to go run 10 miles this morning and i would feel that way for about the first mile and then I would start to say, okay, running's not that bad. 
And as I continued to do it, pretty soon I was like, this is feeling pretty good. And by the end it was, man, I enjoyed that run. And it was that way almost every single day. And so when you and I find ourselves with the wrong desires, we don't sit there, obviously. we put off the old. We remind ourselves and we preach the word of God to ourselves and we start to do the things we're called to do and know that Almighty God has promised that will start changing what you desire. But if we wait, you'll never walk in that. You have to put off, be renewed, put on. So this is what we're called to do. Now, Applying the word is going to be brief today. I'm going to, we're, we're putting a table up here right now. And this lists the three things we've talked about. Our external enemy, the devil, the world, which is his ally, and then the internal traitor, the flesh. And the opposing resource, so to speak. Using by resource, who, who's really opposing them? The devil is opposed by God. The world is opposed by the church and the internal traitor is opposed by our new nature in Christ. And how we overcome them or how we deal with them is the devil, we draw near to God and we stand and resist. The world, we separate internally from and we have a vital connection to a local church. And the flesh, we put off the old, we renew the mind, and we put on the new. So that's that table right there, which will be out on the website, but that's the basic information that we've been building on a lot in this series. Now I want you to think about this table, take a look at it. I want you to understand how each of them works separately and how they collude together to work in your life and mine. And you might want, I would encourage you, go back and re-listen to the teaching on strongholds and see how this applies, how the three of them are working together because what Satan wants is a stronghold within. That's what he's looking for in you and me. So how they work and how they collude together. Now, there's, here's the question that I want to ask you. How's this warfare going in your life and in mine? So I have two, two questions related to that. As you look at that, if you had to pick the main enemy right now, we're always fighting all three. But if you said, which is the hot front in my spiritual war? Is it the devil? Is it the world? Or is it my sinful nature? You had to pick one and say, this is the primary enemy I'm facing right now. Which one would it be? And if you don't know, you need to think and you need to meditate. Because each one has different enemies and weapons that we have to use. See, the saying used to be, and it's true, you can't crucify a demon and you can't cast out the sinful nature. It doesn't work. So scripture tells you put to death the sinful nature, resist Satan. And if you use the wrong weapon at the wrong time, you find yourself impotent in the face of your enemy. So if I have to pick one, what would it be? And am I fighting it the right way? Because it's not enough to say, the world is shaping me and molding me, so it's just going to be me and Jesus. Jesus said, no. If the world is luring you, you need the church. 
particular enemy, particular weapon. So think about that. Which one? You had to pick one. Now we're going to flip the coin over. Do I understand how all three enemies are colluding in my life to enslave me? Because it's not just one. There may be a primary one, but all three are working together. So how are the, the and, and where those three collude is most often where I find stronghold. That's usually where I find stronghold in my life. So where and how are they working, and do I understand where these things are? And I remind you, I won't spend a lot of time going over this, but you remember back in the stronghold thing, very often that there are interlocking sins, there are interlocking problems. And so when, as I shared a couple of weeks ago and embarrassed myself by explaining to you all in great detail my problem with anger, there were underlying issues. But the enemy knew that that was a weakness of mine, and so Satan would work, and one of the things he had was my own internal struggle. I had a struggle with anger. But I also had where the world had shaped me in a certain way that I was very much a legalist and very much wanted control. And so those three colluded that way, which ended up with me in explosions of anger. But just saying, don't be angry, don't be angry, don't be angry isn't going to work it. It's not going to cut it. Because I had to realize I've got some underlying strongholds of legalism and control that have to be dealt with. And if I don't deal with those, I'm never going to win that other battle. So do I know how they are colluding? For other people, there is a fear based on something in their past. And the enemy knows if I have that thing there, if he can touch it, suddenly he's got access. It's the reality. He suddenly found the past. And I've built up the walls and I've stood strong, but there's a past that allows him behind me because of this area in my life. For some of us, that's fear. Remember Job. That was one of Job's things. That which I feared has come upon me. I was afraid this was going to happen. I, I knew if there was any sin at all in me or my kids, everything was going to fall down. Well, that was a bit of wrong theology, but it gave the enemy access. And though Job withstood and withstood and withstood, eventually he gave in and said, I was afraid this was going to happen, and it has happened around me. So do I know how they're working? And am I using the resources to fight? So I'd encourage you to take and think about this, because this is part of our spiritual warfare. This is part of how we do this. You have to know your enemy, and you have to understand him. And there's no simple, easy way around this. I was talking with somebody the other day, uh, Tony Marsh and I were talking. When I was uh, a second-class mid we had to go through what they called uh, ACTRAMID here and PROTRAMID during our, our summers. And one of the things we had to do back then, because our main enemy was Russia, we had to actually look at every silhouette they had of any Russian naval ships and know everything about that ship. Well, why is that important? Because if you're out at sea and you see that ship, you need to know what particular weapons does it have? What are its strengths? What are its weaknesses? What's the way that it's likely to try and attack me? So we had to spend a lot of time understanding our enemies. There's your enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Do we know how they work and how they're colluding? Satan wants to work with his allies to enslave you. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. 
But I pray, proclaim to you good news. Jesus has come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly, overflowingly. That's his desire. And what he wants to do when spiritual warfare arises is so that we can cut those things off that are enslaving, that are ruling, that are controlling you and I. Let's stand together. We're going to close with prayer. And I want to encourage you, as we do so, join with me. And if the Lord has revealed an area to you, let's take that to Jesus now and ask him to set us free. Father, we are grateful that we are gathered here as your people this morning. Father, as Paul said in Ephesians 2 that we read this morning, at one time, O Lord, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. At one time, we lived and followed the ways of the world. We willingly followed Satan and took him as our Lord. We willingly lived among the world, gratifying the cravings and desires of our sinful nature, and we were objects of wrath. But God, we give you thanks this morning that because of Jesus Christ, you have reversed and changed all of that. We who were objects of wrath are now objects of mercy. We who were bowing the knee in allegiance to Satan have now been made your willing subjects. We who were walking according to the pattern of the world are now placed within your people. We who were ruled by our cravings and desires of our sinful nature have now been given a new nature and filled with your Holy Spirit. Father, we give you thanks that all these things are true. But Lord, we recognize that does not mean there is not still a struggle. Lord, we realize that we are very much still having to resist the devil. We are very much still in the world, though we are not of it. And Father, we find too often that the old man wants to be resurrected. Lord, I pray for every one of us that you would give us wisdom and insight into the enemies we face. Lord, those who are here and Satan is directly working and oppressing, I pray, oh God, that they would draw near to you. And I pray, Father, that you would equip and strengthen them and that you would fulfill your word that when they stand and resist the devil, he will flee. Father, for those of us, if there's anyone here who it is the world, they are pressuring, they are squeezing, they are molding. And we find our desires being shaped by that rather than by you. Father God, I pray that you would remind us and that we would faithfully create that internal separation. And Father, I pray that rather than finding our deepest friendships among those who are in rebellion to you, we would find our deepest friendships among your children. That rather than finding our context of life among those who are against you, we would find it among those whom you have called us to walk with. And Father, for those of us and anyone here who it's the sinful nature rising up with old desires, Father, I pray 
By your Holy Spirit, empower us to put off the old. By your word, renew us in the spirit of our mind. And, oh God, may we put on that new nature. Father, I pray that as we do the deeds of righteousness, as we do what you told the church in Ephesus to do in the book of Revelation, to do the things we did at first, God, I pray as we do that, you would renew the desires within us for righteousness and holiness and to walk in your ways. Lord, I pray that sin would look as vile to us as it does to you. And I pray that righteousness and holiness would look as beautiful to us as it does to you. Lord God, I pray you would shape us so that we would walk in the true and the beautiful and the good. For God, that's who you are. Lord, I pray that we, knowing these things, Lord, would see the strongholds in us torn down so that we would experience the abundant salvation that Jesus Christ has come to give us. I pray you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, may there be grace, mercy, and peace from him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. The only God our Savior to whom be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Go in the peace and love of our Lord. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.